Every week on this show, we talk about the science impacting your world, the headline-making science news that warrants a step back, and a conversation with someone who can help us figure out what's going on. But have you ever wondered what else we don't talk about? Well, so do we. Welcome back to the Weekly Sideshow, where we hope to cover just that, and update you on the science news you didn't know you needed. I'm June Kim. And I'm Sam Marchetti. And today we're going to get up to date on everything from gene editing all the way to the coral reefs in another discussion on the sidelines. So June, I don't know if you heard this week, um, the government of Ontario and I think BC as well, and then a lot of places in the States, uh, it feels like a lot of the world is trending towards this. We're done with COVID. Right. It's I, just, I did hear about this. I, I heard Hawaii is the last American state and they're removing their uh, like masking policy in a couple of days here. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems like most of the world is just kind of they're at the point where they're everyone's saying they're done. Right. Hmm. And I mean, you know, you do you. That's fine. You want to give people choice at this point. I'm I'm personally kind of on board with that. Um, but, I you know, I admit that's a kind of a personal decision. Having said that, um, removing all the mask mandates. Uh, could could significantly impact the the number of cases we're seeing uh, on a regular basis. And part of that comes from the fact, um, and this is a, a recent kind of finding, that masks can actually reduce the distance that airborne pathogens can travel by over half compared to not oh, wearing wow. a mask. Mm-hmm. I mean, masks are very effective. Yeah, you can infect twice as many people around you or like, you know, people twice the distance away. They were saying it's better to wear a mask and be three feet away than to not wear a mask and be six feet away. And we're talking about even in outdoor environments. I feel like when it comes to all these other diseases, too, like it's, it's not just COVID, right? It's like the flu, the common cold. There's there's other things that it helps with, right? Yeah, for sure. Because all, you know, a lot of viruses actually travel the same way. And we did a post on this a while back. I don't know. Do you remember that? I, I think I did read into that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, Connor, our uh, CEO, and I actually wrote this. Um, talking about the differences between particles, aerosols, and droplets. So when we talk about viral transmission, um, particles is kind of like a general term that we talk about. And particles um, just means tiny amounts of anything that can travel through the air. So we could be talking about ash, or we could be talking about water vapor, or we could be talking about, you know, uh, COVID-carrying particles. Aerosols and droplets are different sizes of those particles. So aerosols are really, really small things, like picture if you had hairspray or bug spray and you spray that out versus um a droplet like you have like an eyedropper and you're you know uh pushing drops out of that that would be Mm. considered a droplet and they think that face masks now have actually been able to reduce the transmission you know that transmission distance um in both of these cases whether it's droplets or aerosols that's pretty good i mean i i would i would hope that like even though like this isn't mandatory or anything like that I, i think i heard this like uh report from one of the Canadian scientists who is, you know, heading up the uh, policy or all the regulation on all of the COVID things that are going on. And she said that there's a chance that there's going to be uh, another resurgence or another, you know, masking mandate or whatever uh, later, like after the summer and the fall again. She said not to be surprised if that's something we see in the future again. So hopefully we don't go in that direction, but there yeah, is always I- risk. I wouldn't be surprised either. I also think um, a good number of people will still, you know, electively choose to wear masks. I know I will just because I don't want to get sick. And honestly, I was thinking this halfway through COVID. I'm going to wear a mask for just, you know, the the foreseeable 
future of my life even after covid's gone because i don't want to get the flu i don't want to get sick at all like you know yeah. i didn't know masks were this effective like yeah <laughs> i thought people that lived in beijing just wore them to protect themselves from like the air pollution there you know like that was literally the only example i could think of of masking right, before right. the pandemic but now i realize you know this is really effective yeah and it's kind of a norm out there too in a lot of like east asian countries yeah but you know it's cool that we have this tool now Mm-hmm, and whether course. or not it's uh you know it's voluntary or mandated um it's great to have this kind of information telling us from you know a, an empirical point of view we know wearing masks will reduce how far you can transmit um viruses and diseases right 100% so sh- shifting gears a little bit over to the world of insects so i personally love salty food i will always choose savory over sweet do you have a do you have a particular opinion on this, savory versus sweet? Honestly, I like both. I really like um, like chocolate-covered pretzels, that kind of stuff. It's oh, that's A1. kind of both. Yeah, that's a really yeah. good one. Well, it turns out pollinators actually agree with me. They also like savory over sweet, uh, which really? kind of sounds weird because like nectar is sweet. But um, l- let me explain what I mean by this. I think actually they're closer to what you said, and they kind of like both. So bees or butterflies or other pollinators they actually prefer flowers that have a little bit more sodium in the nectar. They prefer to have a little bit of salty nectar. Uh, I guess nectar can be considered sweet. So I guess it's a little bit of both. And the reason why specifically it's sodium, and that's something you find in salt, uh, is so important is because it maintains a certain amount of water inside the cells. And bees, butterflies, other herbivores, and just a lot of insects in general find it really difficult to get a lot of sodium through their natural diet. So if you don't have enough sodium or if you have too much sodium, it'll cause your own cells to either gain too much water or lose too much water. There's just kind of an imbalance inside like your body, uh, whether you're an insect or a human. And that means that, you know, they need to get enough sodium. And one of the ways they like to get enough sodium is to find nectar with more sodium. That, that's what they are looking for. Hmm. Interesting. So how do we get, is there any word on, you know, how, like what kind of plants have more, you know, sodium? Yeah. So this is the thing, like when they did a test on this, they like, like actively created like nectar with more sodium, but like on, at unnatural levels, but it was used to just kind of gauge if these uh, pollinators are going to like the sodium or not, but in nature, like naturally, you don't really have large quality quantities of sodium and nectar. It's quite rare to have that naturally. Usually there's like slight deviations. You have like slightly more sodium in the nectar. But even if it's slight, uh, supposedly these pollinators will gravitate towards that. And, you know, there's, there's, there's something like kind of odd that I actually even found that honeybees actually prefer drinking like dirty water than clean water because dirty water has more sodium in it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, they, they really are looking anywhere they can, even like, like and, and this is one of the lines they use in the article, but blood, sweat and tears also have sodium. So these insects like to gravitate towards blood, sweat and tears as well. Wow. That, honestly, that really makes me think about, um, you know, potential avenues for plant evolution, because whenever we mm-hmm. talk about evolution, you know, we talk about natural selection and that if a plant happens to develop a trait that's beneficial, it'll get, you know, um, pollinated more and it'll, those genes will be passed on. We'll get more of those plants. So if we had a plant that all of a sudden could be pollinated by these species and, you know, had some mutation that allowed it to have, you know, more sodium rich nectar, those plants would just start popping up all over the place. And that's not a huge thing. 
Right. And because you're saying it's a very slight difference, right, that they're looking for, even mm -hmm. a plant with like a little bit more sodium, we could see huge changes um, in the in the makeup of our plant population. Yeah, they, they said pollinators are about two times more likely to go with to flowers with more sodium. So it is actually a substantial difference for these pollinators. Two times. Dang, that's wild. On the note of evolution and kind of, you know, uh, ecology. One of the ways that we've been pushing evolution in the last, um, I don't know how long it's been, last decade or so, um, you've heard of CRISPR, June? Yes, I'm familiar. So, uh, yeah, so CRISPR-Cas9 is a uh, gene editing tool uh, that people have been investigating. And essentially what it does is it has this protein called Cas9, which will go into your DNA or the DNA of whatever organism you're editing. Um, and it will cut out sections of your DNA or make openings and it will splice in sample DNA that you've added to the mix. Um, mm. So you can edit the DNA of, of any organism. However, this tool, um, it, it's been known to be a little bit uh, dangerous. <laughs> yeah, I, I can see how things could go very easily wrong. If like, what if you cut in the wrong place? What if the gene yeah. you put in is not exactly what you wanted? Well, that's exactly the thing, cutting in the wrong place. There's been a bit of a risk of uh, the Cas9 protein cutting the DNA in the wrong place and actually damaging mm -hmm. the, uh, the DNA. And there have mm -hmm. been some developments over time um, to try to like reduce that. but researchers very recently um, have come up with a much better development and they refer to the older developments. Um, they use the analogy of a self-driving car. Um, so we have some to some level self-driving cars now, right? Right. But they all have limitations, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. If you've ever uh, driven in a Tesla, you know, they have uh, self-driving, but for the most part, it's only on highways. Or if you have a self-driving car on uh, like every street, Usually those are cars owned by like Google or something and they only go like 10 kilometers an hour. Like they move really slowly, right? So we've improved the technology, but it goes very slow. And this is what was happening with the improvements to the Cas9 protein. So they were reducing the risk of um, cutting the DNA in the wrong place, but the protein was working really slowly. Mm -hmm. So now they developed one that they call SuperFi Cas9, which is just nice. a hilarious name. It yeah, sounds like yeah. it belongs at Best Buy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so this, this SuperFi Cas9 supposedly um, actually has 4,000 times less likely to cut off at, uh, to cut DNA at like the wrong site. 4,000. But it's just as fast as other Cas9. That's pretty good. So what did they do differently? They so, so they redesigned uh, a certain part of the Cas9 uh, that instead of stabilizing the part of the DNA that contains a, uh, a mismatch, it's kind of pushed away from the DNA. So if the Cas9 starts to cut at the wrong place, it'll just push itself back away instead of trying to fix what it's done. Mm, I see. So it's just better at recognizing things, maybe. Yeah, it's kind of like those uh, those saws. Um, you know, you know, like power saws, they, have you ever seen those videos of when oh, you know, right. they'll throw like a hot dog at it or something to show yeah. that as soon as it makes contact with something, it'll just stop. Right. That's what this Cas9 does. If it, like if it cuts in the wrong place, it will, um, they, it'll kind of like back off. Well, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So have you watched, uh, Avengers Endgame, a very huge global phenomenon? I'd like you to describe it as a very huge global phenomenon. Yes, I've watched it. I've watched I would, it. I would say it is. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. So off of the uh, in that movie, one of the lines is, I use the stones to destroy the stones, right? Yeah. 
well, recently, some researchers in California are using the mosquitoes to destroy the mosquitoes. So I, I thought that's my transition into this one. I like it. I like it. There is a very difficult to pronounce, I'm going to give it my best shot, uh, species of mosquito called Aedes aegypti. And this is a very specific species of mosquito. And it's caused, there's an issue in America. I'm sure there are other mosquito species in other places in the world that are also kind of problematic when it comes to spreading many diseases. And this one in particular spreads like dengue, the Zika virus, yellow fever. And that's obviously a problem. And extermination is pretty difficult. It's hard to just use like tons and tons of like insecticides, hoping that they're going to be eliminated. But that's not something that's very easily done. So here's the part where they use the mosquitoes to destroy the mosquitoes. They genetically modified this specific species to, and, and they only have male versions of this genetic, a genetic, genetically modified mosquito. And then they have a sabotage gene in their genetically modified males. So if they mate with any other mosquitoes in the wild, all of their offspring are also going to be male because the sabotage gene is actually attached to the female chromosome. So that means no female mosquitoes in the wild, if they have any offspring, can survive. Meaning, hopefully, over time, you'll only have males, and then hopefully over time, that means they just die off and aren't able to reproduce. And that's that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to like release these genetically modified mosquitoes to kind of sabotage uh, any chance for them to kind of uh, to have more mosquitoes or have more offspring. And hopefully, that's a way to reduce the the rate at which they multiply because you know insects specifically uh multiply at very very high rates yeah so they're trying to they're trying to reduce their evolutionary fitness to zero yeah exactly <laughs> quite literally and the great news here is um you know male mosquitoes specifically actually do not bite like if you've ever been bit bitten by a mosquito that has always been a female mosquito so that means if male mosquitoes don't bite they also don't transmit diseases so that's that's just kind of a win in, in that in that field. So up here in the summers, we get a lot of, uh, you know, in southern Ontario, we get a lot of West Nile virus, which is also mosquito borne. So could we use the same kind of strategy in theory to solve that problem, uh, you know, in our neck of the woods? This particular strategy of elimination could be used quite literally anywhere. So, you know, there's yeah. a big issue with malaria uh, in many places in the world, honestly. And that potentially could also be something. But right now, and, and for right now, when it comes to this specific testing, they only have approval to test it in very, very few counties and in very specific areas in those counties in California and Florida. So they're still testing it out and they're, they just got the approval. So they're going to start testing it out in actual like wildlife scenarios. Uh, but you know, if this works out, then it could be expanded to other areas for sure. That's pretty cool. Um, okay. So I want to jump back. Uh, for a bit, just a little bit. Uh, so a few weeks ago, we talked about um, we were talking about COVID and we were talking about um, there was a study that showed how COVID might be affecting the brain. Do you remember this, June? Yes, I remember that one. So this study looked at uh, the receptors that SARS-CoV-2 that the virus was um, impacting. Um, and if you've listened to the show a few weeks ago, um, we talked about the ACE2 receptor. So that's where the SARS-CoV-2 virus attaches to your cells. Um, and this study that we talked about, um, it kind of showed that there were a lot of ACE2 receptors in your brain in a lot of different areas. And that might sort of be, you know, on the verge of explaining um, why so many uh, COVID, uh, COVID patients or people who've had COVID in the past 
um, have this kind of brain fog or this long-term uh, brain, brain damage and brain uh, effects um, from having COVID. So more recently, there have been uh, studies and Axios did a really good kind of summary of everything we know so far. Um, and these studies, the first thing they show, which was pretty interesting, this was a very recent thing, uh, SARS-CoV-2 may be able to cross the blood-brain barrier. Oh, yeah. So there's that sounds scary. But but why is that scary, Sam? So the blood brain barrier uh, generally prevents a lot of germs from reaching our brain. Um, We know some pathogens can breach it. We still don't know for sure if SARS-CoV-2 can cross that barrier. But recent studies have some evidence that it it can. Um, Mm. And they've also found in autopsies of uh, SARS-CoV-2 infected patients that uh, cells near the brain can inflame uh, the brain barrier cells, and this inflammation can kind of be relayed into the brain's neurons and glial cells. Mm, I see. Yeah, so they also found um, they found biomarkers in blood plasma that kind of suggest that those, uh, those uh, supportive glial cells in the brains have been activated and that there was inflammation going on there um, in COVID patients. They also found that, you know, the damage... Um, this is in different studies, but uh, they found recently that the damage caused um, can really, first of all, it can really vary. You can end up with like pretty severe brain damage and pretty mild brain damage from having COVID. Okay. Take one guess what like the maximum kind of brain damage, like what what would you think would be the, the worst brain damage you could get from COVID? Maybe like your frontal lobe, like your cognitive thinking kind of damage. Yeah, so it actually showed that it can shrink the size of your brain. Oh, the entire brain. You're the entire brain. So just a few months after infection, some people at like the worst end of it showed, um, you know, symptoms in their brain that made it look like their brain had aged a decade. Oh, wow. After just a few months. That is substantial. Yeah, it's very substantial. Um, And, you know, there are some kind of concerns based on this that you could accelerate or trigger like early Alzheimer's um, or Parkinson's diseases in the brain. Um, that, that was where my mind was going to. Yeah. Um, and there's like a, in studies in Wuhan uh, specifically uh, have noted that there's like a noticeably higher risk of dementia in people who had severe COVID. Um, mm. And it, there is a higher risk in people who had like mild COVID as well, um, but not okay. quite as much. Right. Is this specifically with older populations, would you say, or like anyone who gets COVID ever would experience this? Like, no, it's been looked at. It's been looked at in pretty much everyone Um, across all age groups. We're seeing uh, similar effects. Um, And there is there have like there's some other studies that are kind of going forward right now to see if we can reverse these changes, especially in the brains of younger people. Um, Mm -hmm. And also if these changes are the cause of that kind of brain fog that people report, because we're still not. 100% certain if those two things are linked. But there are pieces of evidence that kind of point towards, yes, there is long-term damage, long-term consequences. And, and, you know, that's something we can't really even evaluate until we wait. And I guess we have waited, we've looked, researched, and that's kind of scary to hear. Yeah. So we've gone from saying, oh, there's just long COVID as like, you will have symptoms for a while. Now we're saying, well, COVID can cause long-term damage in these specific ways. Hmm. That is very scary. Yeah, it is. But I'm, you know, I'm hopeful about the studies that are kind of like looking forwards and seeing if the changes are reversible. I'm hoping there is going to be some result that they can find a way to reverse these changes that are going on. Um, 
Yeah. That'd be good. Ho- hopefully we can find something uh, in, in that field as well. I want to end on more of a happier note a little bit. And maybe ironically, a lot of people associate coral reefs and gl- climate change to like, oh, we're like all, all the cl- uh, coral reefs are like dying. But I'm actually going to talk about a success story with coral reefs in Hawaii, despite climate change. So in this, all, all this depressing news about coral reefs dying and the, like the Great Barrier Reef having shrunk in like a substantial amount uh, because of rising temperatures and pollution, there is actually some hope. So there's also increased carbon dioxide, CO2, being trapped in oceans, and that also increases acidity. So I think these two factors they mentioned are specifically the biggest reasons why coral reefs are having a tough time surviving, the acidity of the water and also the temperature of the water. So they did a new study. It lasted 22 months, and specifically... They said that other coral reef studies only last about like five months. So they were saying that this is a well-needed study, like way more long-term. So in the 22 months uh, of this coral reef research, what they did was they took coral reefs, they mimicked current ocean conditions, but then they also mimicked worse ocean conditions, uh, probably like two degrees increased temperature, 0.2 pH more acidic. And that's where people could say we can expect to be in like a decade or two. So if we continue to go through this trajectory of climate change and pollution and global warming. So basically, the happy news is there's this one specific group of coral reefs called Porites, and they were a lot more resilient than we originally thought. Uh, unfortunately, not every coral reef was like very resilient, but, but there are specific kinds of coral reef uh, species that were. And the resistance or adaptability, they found that Porites compressa could survive 71% of the time compared to about 46% for just another normal coral reef. So 71 versus 46, that's, that is pretty substantial. And that the good news here is that coral reefs are finding ways to be resilient and adapt to climate change. And uh, here's, <laughs> even in the happy news, there's obviously some bittersweet sad news. But if you had done none, no change and we just have our current conditions, 92% of coral reefs would have survived on average. So, you know, having no pollution is obviously the best way to go. Yeah, but it is good to hear that, you know, e- even with all this change and at the the pace it's going, right? Because that's always been the concern with climate change. We're changing the environment so fast that right. evolution isn't going to have time to catch up, right? We're not, species won't have time to develop adaptations um, to kind of cope with the environmental changes. But, it, you know, it's good to hear that it, it is happening and in one of the most important uh, marine ecosystems as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And coral reefs specifically are just so important to for like shelter and just like the ecosystem for so many other, um, you know, fish or sea life, I should rather say. So it, it's good to know that they're being a lot more resilient. And specifically, the fact that this lasted so long, 22 months, uh, showed kind of a bigger picture because one of the other claims that they made was when you look only at five months, you can see like the down curve of maybe these coral reefs just dying off, but you don't see the up curve of them actually showing the resilience and bouncing back uh, some, sometimes. And that's that's kind of the value of their study, they said. Yeah, I get that, right? Because that's how, I mean, that's how natural selection works. First, it's the, you know, the dying off of the individuals that uh, can't can't survive and can't reproduce. And then it's the bounce back of the individuals who have those beneficial traits, the ones who have the things that can allow them to survive in the environment. So, yeah, that actually makes sense that they're just missing the, the upshot at the end there. Yeah. So they, they, they were just reporting the grim news, seeing all of these coral reefs dying. But, you know, when, once they turned their backs away after the five months, turns out some of these coral reefs were actually coming back 
um, and being a lot more resilient than we thought. Yeah. So, you know, moral of the story, look on the bright side, right? <laughs> yeah, hopefully. And um, thank you for tuning in. And remember to subscribe for more conversations and some insightful answers to your questions about the science impacting your world. If you want to learn more about genetic modification or any of the other topics we've talked about on the show, visit us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at Sci for Everyone and on our website at www.scienceforeveryone.ca. On the Sidelines is a podcast by Science for Everyone. It's produced by Sam Marchetti, June Kim, and Taneshwari Rajendran. On the Sidelines is sponsored by the University of Toronto's Student Engagement Grant.